everyone. Welcome to News and Brews, our weekly to the point video series where we discuss new developments related to the coronavirus pandemic and other emerging issues in college athletics. As a reminder, I'm Katie Davis, leader of the James Moore Collegiate Athletics team, and I'm joined by my partner, Ken Kurtzel. We're very excited to continue featuring voices from the industry and joining us for a discussion this afternoon is Travis Smith. He is the Assistant Director of Academic Services and Certification for Indiana Athletics. He's also a doctoral student studying higher education at Indiana University and is the founder of the Higher Ed Athletics podcast. Travis and I first connected via Twitter of all places during the NACTA convention last summer after recognizing that we both focus not only on athletic departments, but also more broadly on the overarching higher education institution. So I'm excited to feature a voice that bridges the gap between higher ed and NCAA policy today. Welcome, Travis. Why don't you start by telling us what has inspired you to start your higher ed athletics project and what specific projects you have in the works? Yeah, thanks for having me. Unfortunately, we won't see each other at NACTA this year um, with the, the cancellation with everything. But, you know, I've, I've always been curious and not really too shy to speak in front of an audience or share my opinion. And so I really loved listening to podcasts. And um, I thought I had an interesting perspective that maybe wasn't being covered. And so I just started doing it kind of naturally. And um, higher ed athletics just kind of seemed like it um, encompassed the things that I wanted to study. I always knew that I was going to go uh, to a doctoral program, just didn't know when, because I was working at a Division II institution that didn't have a program. We didn't have doctoral programs. And so uh, when I when I was a uh, was offered the position in Indiana, I knew I was gonna um, apply and get in hopefully to that uh, doctoral program, which I did. And so I started the podcast really as a learning experience um, because it's a lot easier to just be able to ask um, people their their insights. Uh, I think whenever you also can kind of self-promote them or their athletic department or their institution and, and really it's just access um, to information. And so I just kept going with that um, and you know, I've had some tremendous uh, athletic directors and college presidents uh, to be on my podcast. And now that's spiraled into uh, what I want to do moving forward while I do the doctoral program, which uh, is going to produce a lot more content. So I'm not sure if anyone knows Gary Vaynerchuk, but, you know, he's a lot about mm -hmm. talks about document uh, uh, or document, not create, mm -hmm. basically meaning just use your experiences, document it and let it be raw. And I thought, you know, I already have a little bit of a following with higher ed athletics. I offer my opinion on things and I'm just going to turn my education experience into content, uh, basically vlogging about what I'm reading, what I'm studying, going to keep doing podcast interviews with people that are talking about things that I'm interested in. And then as I develop the idea that I think I already have in my head of um, what I want my future career to be. Uh, the dissertation topic is going to be a huge piece of this uh, this degree, and so I'm going to basically be opening the uh, kind of the camera to my thought processes, and then everything going on with COVID and post-COVID. Um, so that's what I'm excited about. And I've got some research projects um, that I'm doing, and um, so there's a lot of things, but really just trying to uh, focus on my day job uh, mostly, and then my hobby is higher ed athletics. Yeah. No, I. Um, I also follow Gary V, and I think his stuff is really good, and that's a little bit of what has inspired us to do this as well, is just share what we know and help share the voices of other people that 
have a lot to say and don't necessarily always get the opportunity to say them. So um, that's also inspired us as well. Um, would you elaborate more on the challenges that both higher ed and intercollegiate athletics will continue to face in a post-COVID society and what institutions and the NCAA should be doing now for sustainability? Yeah, I think there's there's obviously a lot going on with industry examples. So, um, you know, just thinking about deciding what to do with the fall semester is really first and foremost. Do you bring students back, go virtual only if you have the resources? Do you bring student athletes back over the summer, which some are going to start doing now, and use that as maybe a trial run for the rest of the student population on whether you can actually feasibly uh, do that and welcome students back safely. But it's not only the fall. I mean, you have to start thinking about what do you do if the coronavirus comes back again? And then so certain things, are you building up your online capabilities institution-wide? Can you actually have faculty buy-in to go back to online delivery if you have to? And what did you learn um, from the first uh, trial and error of spring 2020? Uh, and then how are you putting in safety guidelines? I think Purdue, President Mitch Daniels just put out some uh, more op-eds about what, what Purdue's doing, but how are you gonna basically be able to come up with guidelines, ensure the compliance, for not only the academic institution, but then the athletic enterprise. So, um, you know, attending class, living in dorms, eating in the dining room, that's obviously the academic mm -hmm. side. But then if you're a larger institution, how are you actually, um, uh, letting people come to your events? Are you letting people come to your events from the outside of the institution? So I think there's just a lot of things that we don't know yet. Um, but I think the biggest thing is going to be the smaller institutions where uh, I spent most of my career at is hitting enrollment and retention numbers. I mean, that's immediate, but that's also future. So uh, you look at some strategies, Converse College, which is now turning into Converse University, Division II institution. Um, they are going to, or it might be D3, Actually, I can't remember that one right now. Um, but they basically, they were an all-female student population. And now they um, they bumped up a year of when they're going to start admitting uh, male students. And a big leverage of that is athletics. So they basically started um, bringing in more athletes uh, and starting up their sports programs for male uh, student athletes quicker to kind of uh, combat the shortfall that they're probably going to have of enrollment. And it just looks like, this is going to be a one or two or more year thing, depending on who you listen to and what you read. And um, so if D2 or D3 athletes, if they decide to stick it out, I think they'll be OK. Um, but if they decide they're going to forego their sport and they're going to go to um, the local community college or local public institution for a year, that's going to be really devastating for the D2, D3, NAIA institutions that rely heavily on athlete population. Um, so hopefully they can play their sport in the next couple of years post COVID. But if it comes back, I think that's where things could get a little bad uh, for those institutions. Um, and then the final thing is international students. It's so up in the air about what the international student population will look like for American higher education. But especially that once again, the D2 is, uh, is that's a big recruiting area for a lot of their sports. You look at tennis programs, soccer programs. Uh, swimming and diving is huge at the D2 level for international. And so those are some things that are immediate, but also we could see those those kind of spill over for years based on how we control this globally. Mm -hmm. Now, I even see on the international side with some of the northern schools where men's ice hockey is a major revenue generating sport for some D1 schools, 
and they could have some challenges there as well. Although I think they could probably find other people in their programs wouldn't completely go away, but it's definitely something that's in front of a lot of people's minds. Um, so Travis, do you think college athletics will ever be the same? Um, and if so, how long do you think it takes? I think it's, um, I think it depends on the type of the division that they're in, the institution. I really think um, the bigger D1s, I think, are going to be fine um, because a lot of the Autonomy Five conference institutions and Notre Dame, you know, they're they're typically Notre Dame is a bad example of that, but they're typically 25,000 plus students. They're they're the research institutions, they're the land grants, and so I think they'll be fine because they're not relying on enrollment and they can figure out the financial aspect of things um, hopefully without cutting uh, sports like some have had to do um, but I think saving costs at the the non-power five institutions you're already starting to see some conferences uh, talk about either restructuring and partnering with another conference for regional uh, ge geography reasons to save travel costs I think that's something that um, that you might see uh, change so maybe we have another round of conference realignment or unofficial conference realignment through partnerships. Uh, D two is huge uh, at the at partnering with uh, doing crossovers with uh, with with conferences and like the GLVC and GMAC in the Division two where I where I was at. Um, so just trying to find ways to save costs with still keeping scheduling uh, available. I think that is going to be key where you might start seeing that at the smaller D1 levels uh, might just look to say, who's down the road? That might include playing D2, which I think we'll probably get to a little bit. Maybe you play some more D2 competitions, just uh, ways to save money. But I also think it's uh, that they're gonna struggle D2 and D3 to attract regular non-athlete population. So I could see them actually adding more sports. So college athletics, D3 has a lot of sport offerings. D2 has been growing steadily for a while with emerging sports. But I could really see D1 shrink their sports offerings to save money. But I could see D2 and D3, uh, can D3 continuing to have a lot of sports. But I could see D2 getting up to that level uh, where they're adding five to ten more sports, even hmm. club bringing club sports on and putting it under the athletic department like some institutions are already doing because it's enrollment and it's retention. If you're part of a team, you're more likely going to stay. Um, and you want to, if you're the traditional student coming out of high school, and, and someone's gonna allow you to play a sport, I think you're probably gonna stick with it. Um, and so I think those, that's why it's a little bit different based on where you're at. And fortunately, I've been at all three of those types of institutions. I grew up sandwiched between two D3 schools. So uh, I care deeply about all those things. Um, so I just think it's, it's just uh, so much unknown, but I think a lot of this has been kind of developing where you can kind of see what's gonna play out. Obviously, we don't know who all is gonna have sports, who's gonna be open, in the fall, that's not my business to even try and talk about really. But uh, I think this is the chance for athletics to become more part of higher education. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't happen now, uh, between this and NIL, I think those are these are two really good opportunities to kind of become more of a higher education entity at the NCAA. They'll always have critics, but they do a lot of good work. And I think now could be a time where college athletics kind of merges well with higher education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are really good points. Um, and yeah, well, NIL is something we're also still keeping an eye on, even though schools are like, we don't, we can't think about that right now. Um, but we definitely will have you come back sometime and talk about that. 
uh, more because that's something that really interests us as well. Um, I'm going to switch over to Ken. So you've got roughly 25 years of experience working with higher ed institutions, athletic departments, and other related organizations such as the foundations, booster clubs. Um, so as new issues emerge during this pandemic, what barriers to success have you seen um, between um, athletics departments and institutional level policies that might be different from barriers that we've seen during other challenges that they've faced in the past? And then also on the flip side, what scenarios have you seen where institution and athletics can build <clears throat> synergies to effectively navigate this time together? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think the pandemic is actually one of the silver linings is that my big hurdle that, that, we're, that I'm going to highlight that we're seeing is something that's actually starting to become overcome a little bit as a result of the pandemic. And kind of the biggest thing we see, um, I know both you and I have as we've, as we've worked with clients, is just too many people operating in silos and really not, not having good conversations with one another to... So really all of the executive leadership of an athletic department or association or uh, other higher ed institution really is kind of moving forward in the same page. Um, one thing that we've noticed in athletics particularly is the athletic director has a lot of meetings one-on-one -on -one with other senior leaders, whether it's the SWA or the CFO or you know ex external operations, internal. All of those things are kind of done in silos one-on-one -on -one, and it becomes a little bit of a game of telephone, you know, where the CFO may or may not know what is being planned in HR or in some other area within the department. Um, and I know you and I were biased, obviously, towards the CFOs, um, have long advocated for uh, the CFOs being brought into the discussions with other executive leadership, especially the athletic director, as they work through plans for for where where that particular institution is going and that extends also to you know oftentimes the university president and the athletic director probably have a very tight relationship and they're speaking quite frequently um, but how often does that does a big plan get generated and then you know only gets told you know secondhand to the cfo where if, if the cfo was in the conversation from the beginning he or she could have you know, maybe influence something and um, been able to give perspective that allows for a better rollout of particular plans. Um, so it really comes down to communication and not operating in silos, but getting the right people in the room for the, the conversation. And I would say that if anything, we have heard at least that during this pandemic, uh, as you know, we're looking at just kind of almost like nuclear war type uh, possibilities for athletics, you know, with the, if there's no fall sports, you know, what the dollars look like in division one football because of that. Um, it's really forcing the issue of getting the CFO into the room and having the conversation. So we're hearing at least happenstance of CFOs that are having much better and more deliberate conversations with their athletic directors during this crisis. So I think a crisis can bring people together. So my hope certainly is that um, if anything, the silos are being broken down and you're getting the right people in the room to kind of help an institution really navigate, you know, one of the scariest events of the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's not only even just breaking down the silos within athletics, but, you know, is the university CFO and the athletic CFO and even your foundation CFO all talking right. about and, and planning and being strategic? Um, we know presidents and ADs are talking regularly. Um, mm. Of course, the board of trustees or or whatever governing body is um, 
you know, involved in their conversations, but even just getting all of the financial people uh, on the same page is also another um, opportunity for them to operate really effectively during this time. Um, so now, um, you know, there is a lot going on. Travis, as uh, we talked about with between COVID um, and of course seniors getting an additional year, name, image and likeness is still continuing to move forward. Um, and then you have the general complaints in the media about and in the public about co um, coaching compensation and athletic departments overspending. Um, so, Travis, with your unique lens into all of the different types and sizes of schools um, and experience working in several different ones, um, what what have you seen in your research um, that that helps you determine which type of athletic departments are best suited to navigate all of this? Um, is it the ones with a clear vision or the largest reserves? Or tell me more about what you're seeing that positions them well for success. Yeah, and a lot of mine is um, based off of the smaller institutions that I've worked most at. Uh, obviously, I'm at a Power Five institution right now in the Big Ten at Indiana. And I think our schools are typically gonna be okay. I mean, I mentioned earlier, a lot of the autonomy conference institutions are the 25,000 plus research land grants. And when you think about the resources they have, the amount of students, and then frankly, it's the knowledge of experts that, that we have on our campuses. Um, uh, I think it's it's incredible uh, the what's coming out of like Arizona State, Indiana with our, um, with our partnership for testing with IU Health uh, once we come back, things like that that the president announced. I think you're seeing a lot of that and you see the knowledge power that institutions can bring. Um, I think the Ivy League will make it through because of their tradition and their endowments. I know endowments are, I'm not an expert on it, but I know that you have to use it on certain things. So it's not in the media, you might see a billion dollars, but they can't just put all billion dollars towards financial aid, for example. But I think they'll be okay simply because of who they are and who they have been. And then I think the public regional institutions, uh, such as the FCS or mid-majors as we call them in athletics, um, I think they're probably going to feel the pinch the most. I mean, you're seeing some of these types of institutions looking at uh, having to cut sports or, or things like that. Hopefully that stops. But, you know, I'm, I'm assuming with the budget cuts for the entire institution, they're probably going to have to offer uh, cheaper tuition or cut down on fees. If you're only online, are you going to be able to still manage uh, to get those uh, same enrollment numbers with, uh, with the same amount of tuition? So I think they're going to have the biggest ones and they have competition against community colleges and so um they might rather go there for a year or two until this is done and then on top of that from an athletic side of things they're likely going to lose guarantee games for football and men's basketball that really makes up a huge um a huge part of their budget and so when you take all those into consideration they're going to probably feel the biggest pinch and and uh, that hurts to say because i know a lot of good people at those types of institutions and and those institu institutions are important so hopefully they'll all make it out from an institution-wide and athletic. But I really, I don't know that much about HBCUs. Um, I am going to be studying them um, a, a lot in my doctoral program, especially with APR and how it usually impacts them. I want to understand that better. Um, but I believe with their traditions, they can connect, they can get through this as well. It's just everyone's going to feel a pinch. So I think uh, the having a clear vision and being as long as they're lock in step with their presidential leadership, uh, and the institution as a whole, I think that's going to be the best way to get through it. I don't know enough about uh, the reserves and what you can actually do with all that money. To to that, I'm sure that plays into 
uh, into it. But I think if you have a vision and uh, we just have to be able to kind of attack it um, all together. And like I said earlier, I think now is the time where college athletics can go uh, with higher education, get a little tighter and, and realize they're all on the same team. I think a lot of uh, that's what I push a lot with higher ed athletics. That's why I call it higher ed athletics is I, I think some people think it's just the athletic program that's part of the NCAA. But if you talk about um, uh, about institutions collectively, the Big Ten is known for their academic uh, consortium too, um, the SEC as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, good things we can do whenever we actually tie the athletic and the NCAA mm -hmm. component to higher education. And um, I think as long as they're in a clear vision, that's our opportunity and and um i think we can we can learn a lot and that's really what i try to cover with higher ed athletics mm -hmm. now you make really good points on the clear vision um, and even with tradition i think that's something that as you continue to engage your donors and your fan base and alumni and and the next generation of future students coming in um the tradition will definitely go a long way um and then you know the reserves i think that's more the schools are more in the of a minority of the ones that have them i would say the bigger power five not even all power five have reserves just because they're competing in this arms race of having to you know upgrade facilities and do all these other things for recruiting and um having to you know finance that and you know like you had said earlier with the ivies um you know they have these large endowments but the point of those endowments is that the the whole or the, the principal or corpus of that stays there. So it continues to earn money forever. Um, and then if a donor says, I only want you to spend it on softball scholarships, then it's really hard to re-divert that to administrative payroll um, or keeping the lights on or anything. So I think that's uh, something that's misunderstood a lot. Uh, but I know schools are working with contacting donors or setting up agreements with on future donations to make sure that they're not only um, covering something specific but has a clause that says in the case of emergency uh, you do have the discretion to use it toward operations and so I think that's something important that as they continue to set those up that they work on that uh, as a backup plan just so they're not completely restricted by what's in there. Um, so Travis, tell me more about the research that you're doing that tracks both college enrollment as well as athlete enrollment and whether the situation um, is as dire as some stories may lead readers to believe. Yeah, so um, interesting enough, I actually started uh, running a data set before COVID even got here, or at least before it hit higher education, um, because I realized I was just looking for data, like where I can get uh, some good research uh, and then kind of uh, use it for however I could dream up. And I noticed the uh, I knew we had to report that type of information to the to the uh, Department of Education. And so I just uh, downloaded uh, data sets for each year and then uh, started. Um, you can do a quick formula to obviously figure out how many total athletes, uh, what the percentage of campus enrollment for undergrad are athletes. And so, um, and they, they break them down by what their division is uh, and subdivision. So I could look at D2 with or without football, D3 with or without football and, and the breakdown of D1s. So what I decided to do is take all the years I could get. And so um, I, I downloaded all the data and um, worked the numbers 
from before the financial crisis um, back in 2008, 2009 to see what enrollment was before that, what athlete enrollment was. And then basically I just tra tracked the trajectory over the years up until now. And um, some interesting things popped up when I ran the data and um, that, um, for example, McMurray College D3 school, they decided to close after the spring 2020 because of enrollment, which was accelerated because of COVID, I'm sure. But um, in 2008, 34% of the population were athletes versus 53% 10 years later in 2018, even though the total institutional enrollment numbers stayed flat. And so they significantly increased their athletes uh, population and they're not alone. There's some uh, institutions that are north of 60, 70, 80 percent of their campus are student athletes. And yeah, these are mostly the smaller private institutions, but that's what a lot of my research is going to be on anyways. And um, I just think that if we can find um, what happened post financial crisis in 2008, 2009 to enrollment, and I think it's pretty clear a lot of schools used athletics uh, to drive it. And then is that a, is that something that can be sustained after COVID? And that's kind of what I'm now going to be using the data a story to tell. Um, it 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 worked for a while for Mac Murray, um, but not not obviously good enough because they uh, had to close. Uh, so they still were short of those enrollment goals. So I'm just trying to track and see what institutions are doing this. Is it a sign that they're in, in that they should be concerned? Um, and then is it a good thing to maybe just offer more sports? Are you still getting the learning environment that you want while mm -hmm. still being able to maintain that small liberal arts feel? I think uh, it could be kind of a roadmap to how to make it work and then also how to avoid um, uh, falling off if uh, you don't have sports, for example. And so I think a lot of people misconstrue um, the importance of athletics at D2, D3, NAIA institutions. And I don't think NAIA gets, gets enough covered at all. And so that's something I'll be including um, with the data. Um, so that's just one of the many projects I'm, I'm uh, kind of dreaming up and keep pushing along. It's just fun to see a story and working at D2, growing up near D3 schools. Um, I see the importance of it, but I also see that there's warning signs and possible strategies ahead if you can actually do it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah um and so, Ken, we've talked a lot about flaws, and this is specific to financial data, but in the financial reporting system, which doesn't really accurately reflect the relationship between a university and its athletic department. So what are some areas that you see that need more transparency to properly reflect how an institution and athletic department support each other financially? Right. Yeah, there's multiple ways. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting was uh, thinking about it as you were talking about reserves is one of the issues with the NCAA's financial reporting system is, of course, it is focused entirely on just revenues and expenditures within a current year. And even within that context, it doesn't follow general accepted accounting principles. It, 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 it has its own set of rules. So what gets lost is kind of the telling the story of whether or not uh, an institution does have adequate reserves related to athletics or not, you know, to be able to know how they're going to be impacted on their ability to get through this pandemic. Um, so we see some flaws with the fact that it's really only telling part of the picture by showing those revenues and expenses and then having some some issues with like the timing of when you raise funds if you're in a capital campaign versus expending them for uh, capital expenditures which again are go on the institution's books they don't necessarily go on athletics so 
Um, I mean, the NCAA, to its credit, does the best they can to really try to pull that together in a way that schools report comparably. Um, but it's very difficult uh, just because of the very nature of it. And really, athletic um, athletic departments are integral to a lot of, you know, you think about the fact that they're paying scholarships that are an expense on their side, but that's a revenue on the side of the institution. So um, they really are benefiting the institution in ways that go over and above just what might be reported on a revenue and expenditure statement. Um, when you look at things like that, when you look at capital projects where, they're raising the funds and then expending it in, in on capital projects that benefit the overall university. Um, the attraction that that brings, you know, potentially just even in sales of uh, logo merchandise, things of that nature that, that benefit the entire university. So athletics are intertwined with the university in a way that that really does bring a kind of a symbiotic um, improvement if done well to the university's financial picture. Um, and sometimes admittedly it's, it's, it's difficult to capture all of that in the reporting structure that we have currently. And Ken, I think uh, one thing that just reminded me of that while you're talking is I did an episode on my podcast with Rob Mullins from Oregon uh, mm -hmm. last summer. Um, and we talked about that very thing about what Oregon does uh, for the institution paying the scholarships and why it's so hard and confusing. Because I asked him, why is it so confusing yeah. to look at a financial report from school A versus school B? And he had great answers in there about how it's all just different yeah. and uh, depending on your institution and your system. And and uh, one thing that stuck out was uh, also I was there for a Garth Brooks concert in Eugene, Oregon, and he said that was going to be equivalent revenue wise for the for the area as two home football games. Wow. And so um, that was it was incredible to be at that that concert and see the economic impact uh, that it had. But he also talked about how every home game is an admissions uh uh, thing yeah. and when they went out to the Rose Bowl, um, I know that they were doing admission stuff out there. Uh, so uh, a lot of publicity for the institution that I, I don't think that you can put a number to, but uh, but that's just one thing that I think is taken out of uh, context a lot about how much it can do for for the actual institution. So mm -hmm. great points. Yeah, and um, you know that reminds me, it, you know, even the Garth Brooks tour hit several college station um, stadiums and. Uh, University of Florida, same thing. They, you know, had a huge turnout, completely different demographic of people that normally weren't coming on campus that were exposed to campus. And because they were utilizing the field for seating and stage and all of that, um, there was an opportunity to leverage uh, that partnership with their tour to um, make some upgrades to the turf and, um, you know, that would have had to have been a, a larger cost uh, to the university had they not um, been creative. So, you know, looking for creative ways to, you know, utilize those facilities and, um, you know, leverage some of that um, to get additional visibility for them. That's not something that can be easily captured in a financial report, but it's mm -hmm. uh, something that, you know, college athletic departments kind of get a bad rap for just being frivolous with spending, but they are trying to be as creative as possible and be as responsible with the funds that they're given as they can be. Um, so, um, Travis, what do you see? Um, you talked a little bit about potential um, conference partnerships, um, whether it's actual realignment or some unofficial realignment. Um, do you foresee a real chance at the NCAA 
maybe allowing teams to temporarily break away from conferences or divisions for just one year to facilitate kind of a regional um, competition, considering that COVID-19 responses are made on a state-by-state -state level and could vary pretty drastically. Yeah, I, and I thought about that. I don't know that it's if it's the NCAA's jurisdiction for deciding whether that to allow that or if it's the conferences they get to decide that breakaway as much as uh, for scheduling purposes. I know the NCAA can set limits on um, what level you can play, but I don't know if they break it up into and how many you can play. D2 actually shrunk their amount of sports offerings or competitions they can actually have, uh, which was interesting to see as a cost saving measure, but and partially because they were going to have to cancel some events if some people didn't go back. So it kind of gives them some flexibility. So you know, I think a lot of the conferences outside of the Autonomy 5 will probably be looking to do that. There's already talk about, like I mentioned, about trying to merge for scheduling alignments. Um, you know, at the lower level um, uh, le levels of NCAA divisions, um, they already have travel partners. They have uh, regional championship structures, uh, rankings. I think that's going to look really attractive uh, for cost saving and still being able to put on a really good student athlete experience. Uh, for a lot of Division One institutions, I would think it would be at least. I really, I got to see the excitement of the of the regional model um, for championships at the D2 level for years, and and it gives a lot of championship experiences to a lot of students. So maybe that's something that um, that they'll at least temporarily do. And then I think if they do it temporarily, there might be some people that don't want to go back, and so then maybe you see that spill into some realignment. Because I think making this change to allow them to do it is a lot more feasible right now and not as rash of a decision as a complete uh, realignment of conferences at this stage. I don't think anyone's wanting to deal with that right now, um, at least not uh, in, a, in the current setting. But it could start a domino effect where we have another round of conference realignment um, that is more geographic based like D2 and D3 is. We're going to miss uh, less class. There's um, the new baseball model that's been kind of brought out. I don't know where it stands, but trying to change how baseball is actually structured at the at the NCAA level. And I'm guessing softball would be a similar plan where it misses a lot less uh, or classes and a lot less travel involved. And so maybe maybe there's already some things out there that if you just can try it, this is the time to try it. And then maybe some of it sticks. And we that might go back to what we talked about earlier about will college athletics look the same? So I don't know, there's a lot of things uh, that will happen, um, to, uh, but I think the state-by-state -state thing is is incredibly important because, you know, conferences cross state borders and we know that. I know a lot of the governors were trying to work together with bordering states, so I'm sure that'll alleviate some of the problems, um, but it, we'll see how it shakes out, but there's just so many unknowns, but I do think it'll happen. Um, if they want to be able to uh, get enough uh, scheduling going on, especially if you're going to lose, if some schools drop out, what are you going to do? Uh, you're probably going to try and play some some regional instead of just canceling opportunities. Right. I mean, I think if they play schedule as usual, it might be a little challenging to try to reschedule things unless they literally can't cross state lines. Um, but I think if they delay anything, that just blows up the entire schedule, right? So then there's opportunity there. We had a, a few weeks ago, uh, two CFOs from California State University schools, um, San Jose State and Long Beach State. And they talked about, you know, between the CSU and the UC and then the private schools that are in California, 
there are a lot of hour and a half bus trips that they can take and have a lot of competition, especially for Olympic sports. Um, so that's an opportunity where some of their conferences like the Mountain West, um, you know, there's a lot of geographic region in that. And it would be challenging even if they can cross state lines, can they afford it? So um, there I don't know how serious that is, but they were talking about that there is at least an opportunity to have a lot of teams together. But I would think, you know, California is pretty densely populated and there are a lot of schools and it would be a lot more challenging, say, in the central part of the country uh, to get schools to be able to do that. But um, it'll be interesting to see what actually happens. Um, so thank you both. I'm going to shift gears now to talk about the brews portion of our series. Um, so Travis, uh, would you share with us what type of brew you're having today? Yeah, so I'm about to go pick up my kids at, uh, at school. So um, I actually am drinking coffee, my awesome sauce mug. So it's Seattle's best coffee. And then later, uh, when I'm back home, I'll be sampling some of my uh, some of my local brewery, Terre Haute Brewing Company. And I'll be going there this Friday. My cousin's a, a, a partial owner of the company. And so I get to taste test some of their brews. And so I've got a, a few different ones I'm going to try in the next couple of nights. Um, before I go there Friday. So I wish I was I wish I was drinking one of these right now, but it's a work day for me and uh, and parenting duty. So um, but tonight I'll be trying those out. Yeah, no, those sound good. And, uh, you know, Ken and I are following suit as well. We picked up um, some local brews from our uh, uh, Latin cafe. It's a Cuban restaurant in Gainesville. And I'm having an iced cafe con leche and it's really tasty. Ken, what are you having? I'm drinking a cortadito. Uh, yeah, the, it, unfortunately, um, if not for COVID right now, this time of year, I'd be down in Miami at one of our clients and enjoying some great Cuban coffee. So I'm definitely kind of channeling that experience. Yeah. Well, um, Travis, thank you again for sharing your voice with us and our viewers. Our goal is to foster information sharing each week through our News and Brews series. Please tune in each Thursday afternoon for a new episode and you can contact us through our website or email us directly if you have any questions, if you'd like to suggest any topics that you'd want to see discussed here or tell us if you'd like to join us for an upcoming episode. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter um, and for more information on the higher ed and athletics landscape that's rapidly evolving, you can also check out Travis's research by visiting higheredathletics.com. Thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll see you again next week.